Have your Bibles this morning, and I hope that you do. Join me in turning to the book of 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. We'll look together this morning at verses 8 through 17. 1 Peter 3 and verse number 8 is where we'll begin in just a moment. This is uh, a passage that is at the heart, really, of what I think is Peter's overall message. In some ways, it summarizes what Peter has been contending for in the prior three sections of 1 Peter. And in a broader sense, it summarizes the whole of Peter's message in these five full chapters. You would have a difficult time discussing the spirit to which Peter calls us without discussing specifically that we're going to give consideration to in the time that we have together. Peter is summarizing the spirit of those previous passages and emphasizing again the priority of the kingdom of Jesus over all else, prioritizing the salvation of others over our own rights and privileges. I fully anticipate that much of what I say this morning and, and, and many of your thoughts are focused on or reflecting on or you're going to hear through the lens of what you've been observing in the news cycle over the past few days and reasonably and, and rightly so. I've shared with you in the past couple of weeks that a lot of the conversations around the past three passages specifically have been about qualifications and exceptions, right? Peter's dealing with these interactions that exist between Christians and the world around us, our interactions with governing authorities, our interactions with authorities in general, whether it be in the workplace or the slave master institution that he's talking about uh, earlier in chapter two, and even within the family, last week's example of a believing wife and a marriage with an unbelieving husband who may use that situation and prey on her, her vulnerability to take advantage of her commitments to Christ, or maybe just taking advantage of her station or status in life in a patriarchal society. To hear from God's word that submission is the key virtue to which we are called is something that we don't always warmly embrace, but it is no less what we have been called to in those three specific examples and what we are further called to in the example before us. I have hoped as I've watched over the past few days and prayed for a few things, namely the safety of those Ukrainian people who are fighting for the freedom of their country and the well-being of their families. But I have prayed selfishly that what we're watching in the news cycle would have the effect of sobering American minds, observing from such distance what is unfolding there. I hope that what we're observing there restores a sense of weight and gravity to terms like oppression, abuse, and injustice. I'm not suggesting that those things don't exist within our country or within our culture, but I am suggesting that we speak of those words in such a cavalier way that we separate them from real meaning. If you want to see example of what injustice looks like, watch the news cycle over the past few days or over the course of the next few days. That's what real oppression looks like. So I hope it has a sobering effect for us. And I hope it helps 
to dispel these efforts at running to qualifications and exceptions, so often reflecting on how miserable our plight is and how bad things are. I hope that one of the fruits of a sober mind in light of what you've been observing is a fresh appreciation for the freedom that God has provided us with and the safety and the peace that we enjoy, we just take for granted here where we live. I'm thankful to God for that. And it behooves us to remember how fortunate we are. I would have you to be reminded that we enjoy the freedom that we enjoy, the liberties that's, that are customary in our country, not because of the fortitude of our military or any structures or leadership, but by the providence of God and his provision for us, something we should not presume upon, but with great gratitude, thank him that none of us got up this morning with the expectation that we would fight for our lives or be concerned with the well-being of our families as we made our way to worship. I'm thankful for that. I hope again that it's put into perspective some of those qualifications or exceptions that may have jumped to the front of your mind as we've talked through these passages and the gospel call to submission in certain areas of our life over the last few weeks and cause you to reflect on just how good indeed we do have it. It, it is a bit concerning to me that we jump to those exceptions, to those qualifi qualifications as quickly as we do. And it leads me to fearful conclusions about our readiness to suffer in real, tangible ways. In ways that legitimately could be referred to as suffering, oppression, or injustice. Such were the circumstances of Peter's audience in Asia Minor. And he readies the church for those experiences in the verses that we're going to be studying together this morning. Continuing building on what has been stated over the past few weeks. It is not often that I would point you back to sermons that have been preached in the past. I don't typically walk away feeling as though I've done justice to a passage that has been preached. But I would point you back if you were not a part of our last three sermons in the book of First Peter to those messages. Because I am convinced that they strike at the heart of the message of the gospel for Christians in our cultural context. A countercultural call to walk with Jesus with gospel wisdom, even under dark and difficult circumstances. Peter sort of punctuates that in this morning's passage. There is a bit of a soft transition that's happening in the verses that we're going to read. By soft transition, I mean Peter sort of shifts away from these hypotheticals, institutions in society where there are people in a vulnerable position that might be taken advantage of, such as slaves, subjects of oppressive governments, and wives in mixed marriages where a husband may be an unbeliever and therefore would treat her wrongly for her faith in Jesus or even for other motives or other reasons, to now the real experience of suffering. And how we are to regard that w without any specific tag to a certain social institution or relationship or interaction. In the broadest sense, when suffering comes, this is how we conduct ourselves. This is how we carry ourselves. This is how we walk with Jesus when hardship comes. And I would add, these are good principles for walking with Jesus 
in the best of times as well. 1 Peter chapter 3, we're going to begin reading in verse number 8. If you've found your way there, join me in standing out of respect and honor for the reading of God's word. Verse 8, the Bible says, Now finally, all of you should be like-minded and sympathetic, should love believers and be compassionate and humble, not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, giving a blessing, since you were called for this so that you can inherit a blessing. For the one who wants to love life and to see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do what is good. He must seek peace and pursue it because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their request. But the face of the Lord is against those who do what is evil. And who will harm you if you're deeply committed to what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Don't fear what they fear or be disturbed, but honor the Messiah as Lord in your hearts. Always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. However, do this with gentleness and respect, keeping your conscience clear so that when you're accused, those who denounce your Christian life will be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. We might ask of the Apostle Peter, what does it look like to be a follower of Jesus under less than ideal circumstances? The answer is found in eight, verses 8 and following. I want us to look first at verses 8 and 9. It's sort of packages together the spirit that Peter is calling for in the verses we've been considering over the past few weeks. Verse 8. Now finally, all of you should be like-minded and sympathetic, should love believers and be compassionate and humble, not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, giving a blessing. This is the kind of gentle, meek, mild, lowly, humble spirit that we've been called to and the three submission passages that come before the one before us this morning. We should be like-minded, Peter says, which is to say we should seek commonality. We should be of one accord. We should be of one mind, single-minded in our focus on the advancement of the gospel, gaze fixed on Jesus, be like-minded. And be sympathetic, Peter says, which is understanding of those around us who may struggle in an area or a barrier, express some difference with regards to a position that is not of central focus for us. Be like-minded and sympathetic. We should love believers, Peter says. Oh, how we should love believers. Do you realize that you have a special obligation to love brothers and sisters in Christ. Even when they say things or they do things that may rub you the wrong way, you have a special obligation to love believers. I, I, I don't understand this, the absence of this virtue and so much of what is calling itself Christianity. I don't understand where it ever became a part of the practice of our faith to parse every word and investigate every brother or sister in the search of some reason to find foul in their experience. 
The Bible calls us to be like-minded, to be sympathetic, to love believers. I remember when my oldest son came to faith, when Trey came to faith, when he believed. Being struck by the realization that even for my son, for my son, now as a believer, I had a higher obligation to love him as a brother than I had before. We are to love, and I don't know what it's going to take in our culture to rectify this situation, but I suspect it's going to involve a great deal of suffering. We have confusion and turmoil and hostility at every turn in our culture. And rather than embracing one another in the common bond of the gospel, there seems to be this inclination toward investigating every matter in a person's life and parsing every word that they say to make sure that they accord perfectly with us on every tiny detail-specific issue in our life. What we're called to here is a warm embrace of the brotherhood to see the kingdom advanced above our agendas. Love believers, Peter says. Be compassionate, just to, to say, feel real mercy for those who struggle. Weep with those who weep. Be understanding of the struggles, even the sin struggles of other, others. Be compassionate and be humble, esteeming others more highly than ourselves. Verse 9, Peter says, we're not to pay back evil for evil or insult for insult. On the contrary, give a blessing. When we're attacked, we don't retaliate. That's, that's not our default heart position to retaliate when the insult or the accusation or the physical attack comes. We addressed in weeks past that there are circumstances under which we take a defensive posture when providing for the needs of those in our care, even providing for or protecting the value, the sanctity of our own life, the life God has entrusted to our care. But the default position is one that esteems others more highly than ourselves, even when our rights and privileges are imposed upon. We don't return insult for insult or attack for attack. We don't pay back evil for evil. On the contrary, we are called upon here to give a blessing. I have, I have watched with such amazement, and I have been moved at what I have observed in the courage, the bravery of the Ukrainian people over the past few days. And, and, and I think in my heart, at least, I suspect this is true for others, I, I, I begin to look for areas of my life where there can be an opportunity for an outlet for that kind of bravery and courage. The reality is the circumstances under which Bravery and courage exhibited in those ways are, are really rare opportunities. You, you as, as, as men especially, should stand ready for those opportunities. But maintain the posture Peter describes as the default. Now what we'll do in our sinfulness is we watch what we watch. We get moved, we're moved by that, Right? I remember as a little boy, my, my parents finally, they would not let me watch the Rocky movies because I just pound on my sisters for the rest of the day. You know, you just, you just sort of get wrapped up in that. You know, you, you're looking for somebody to sort of tussle with a little bit. No more Rocky movies. No more Rocky movies and no more Rambo. There were booby traps all over the house. And you'll watch things like this even as an adult and you're moved by that. 
And, and it's good that we'd be moved in that way. I can't tell you the number of times I've thought to myself, now I'll go to war behind a president like that. You, you want to pack up and load some ammunition and, and go to the front, you know. But what we'll do in our sinfulness is we'll begin to create in our imagination circumstances tailored to fit that situation so that we can exhibit this courage and this bravery we see before us. We're moved by that. So we want to act on that in some kind of way. Now, I just want you to be reminded this morning that those windows of opportunity are rare, but that real bravery in the 99% of the rest of our life, real bravery looks like the way, the meekness, the, the tenderness of our Savior, Jesus, who feared not the laying down of his life unto death for the well-being of others. That's gospel courage. That's gospel bravery. And it's far more difficult than the machismo we often associated, associate with heroism, like what we see. And it's good that we do. It's a noble thing that we're observing. It's a moving thing that we're observing. But praise be unto God, those are not the circumstances under which we live today. And until they are, we have been called upon to set this as the default position of our heart, that we would return not evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, we would give a blessing. The way Peter ends verse 9 is this, since you were called for this so that you can inherit a blessing. If you're a note taker or an underliner or a highlighter, the phrase, since you were called for this, is a good one to underline. This is the second time that Peter uses that terminology and he'll use it again in 1 Peter. In each of its three occurrences, it comes in the context of suffering. You were called to this, and the this is suffering. Three times, Peter says, you were called to suffer. A part of what it means to be called to faith in Jesus is to take up the cross, to endure suffering, to bear with the, the indignities of following after Christ, to fill up, Paul says, the sufferings of our Lord Jesus Christ, bearing with the hardship of walking with him in a world that is not our home. You were called to this. You shouldn't be dismayed. You shouldn't be taken aback. You shouldn't be discouraged. You shouldn't be confused when suffering comes. But understand that you were called to this. It comes in a variety of different ways. But it ought to serve as affirmation to us that something is right when there's hardship to be endured. There are these windows in my life when things are just going swimmingly. And I look around and go, uh-oh. And then there are times in my life where now, early on, I can't say it was this way, but now th things are just bad and they're difficult and they're hard. I don't feel well. Maybe there's grumbling. Maybe there's some kind of issue to deal with, frustrations in a variety of different areas. You just can't seem to get traction. And I think to myself, we're in a good spot. This is it. The Lord's up to something here. You see how that, that's a reversal of the way we often think? So often we misinterpret the events of our life. Paul said, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Difficulties will come. In that second missionary journey, Paul circles back to encourage the churches, to strengthen the churches. Do you know what his message was? Through much suffering and tribulation, you must enter the kingdom of heaven. That's not exactly your best life now, right? He, he's saying this is a part of it. 
Rather than being dismayed or discouraged by suffering in the present hour, be affirmed in that, that perhaps God is up to something. Paul would write, there's a, there's a door of opportunity and there's much opposition. He, he would discern the opportunity by the level of difficulty before him. If it's hard, surely God is in it. You're called to this. It comes in a variety of different ways. It, 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 can, it can be external things. It can be things happening to you, things happening, ar happening around you through no fault of your own. It can be internal things. It can be sickness. It can be d depression and discouragement. It can be any number of things, temptation in general. But you ought to anticipate that there's going to be some level of difficulty that comes with the call of Christ that says, take up the cross and follow after me. What Peter's calling us to here in verses 8 and 9 is a consistently Christian system of values. One that determines to follow Jesus faithfully, not on the basis of the circumstances of life. Are y'all with me? There's this common thread runs through all of Jesus' teachings. What we do from day to day, from moment to moment, is not dictated to us by the circumstances of our life or the environment in which we find ourselves. Whether everyone around us is doing what is right and what is good and what is wholesome or not, we follow faithfully Jesus. In the best of times and in the worst of times, these are the values we consistently hold without exception, without qualification. This is who we are to be. Verses 10 through 12 Peter cites a lengthy passage from Psalm 34, a psalm of David. And here's what David wrote, beginning in verse 10. For the one who wants to love life and to see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do what is good. He must seek peace and pursue it. Because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their request. But the face of the Lord is against those who do what is evil. And it's a brilliant citation from the Old Testament. In Psalm 34, David is writing during a strange time in his life. And David is a great example of the very principles Peter's been discussing in chapters two and three. During the time that David wrote Psalm 34, he had been anointed by Samuel to be the next king of Israel. But Saul was still on the throne. And Saul sought David's life. Saul was intimidated by the David that was already beginning to, to express itself. They sang of David and Saul. Saul killed his thousands, but David killed his ten thousands. Saul might be good, but hey boy, David is great. And, and Saul in his insecurity sought the life of David. And again and again and again, David had the life of Saul in his hand. But he determined within himself that he would not touch the Lord's anointed. He had the ability, and some would argue he had the right, given he'd already experienced the anointing of Samuel to the office of king in Israel. But he would not take the life of Saul. Rather, he ran for his life rather than running the risk, the danger of violating the command, the will of God for his life and taking the life of Saul, God's duly appointed king over Israel. During this particular season in David's life, he was in exile. He was among the Philistine people. In fact, he was before a Philistine king. And that Philistine king too knew the reputation of David. He recognized David and in his insecurity thought for a moment that perhaps he should kill David. 
before David has an opportunity to amass his forces or call upon his mighty men, we'll just have David's head lopped off. We'll undo this future potential issue. But David, in wisdom and cleverness, began to foam at the mouth and claw at the door. He feigned insanity before that king, and the king just let him go. He said, get this crazy person out of my room. Get them away. And David escaped. Without ever demonstrating any act of violence, without calling upon the power of his mighty men of valor, without employing any kind of physical act in opposition, any act of violence whatsoever against this Philistine king, David used his cleverness to get out of this particular set of circumstances. And following that event, he wrote the words of Psalm 34. Again, it's a genius citation, not only for the ways that David illustrates this kind of winsome cleverness that Peter is calling for in the previous passages, but the way it connects faithful obedience to the providence, the provision of God's providence for our protection. Verses 10 and 11, it's a, it's a moral passage. It's a passage that calls to rightness. The one who wants to love life and to see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do what is good. He must seek peace and pursue it. He must do what is right. But the bulk of Psalm 34 is about celebrating the faithfulness of God in exacting justice against the enemies of God's people. The way the verse ends, verse 12 ends, is, is really, really captures the essence of what Psalm 34 is about. The face of the Lord is against those who do what is evil. If you've been listening along, if you've been following along in 1 Peter, and you've not thought, I hear the command, but I do not want to do it. You have not been listening carefully, or you're not being honest with yourself. I hear this but it doesn't sit well with me. I do not want to actively do what this passage requires of me. It's going to make me do some things that I don't like in my free, independent spirit, red-blooded American body. I do not want to do these things. If you've not responded in that way, at least internally, you're being dishonest with yourself or you're not paying good attention in the preaching time, one of the two. But here, Peter calls our attention to a reality that makes palatable those jagged gospel pills that Peter has been feeding us over the past few weeks. Here, Peter gives us a passage that reminds us to rest in the justice of God, in the notion that there is coming a day when the perfect justice of God will finally and forever, without exception or technicality, be served in all the earth. That's what verse 12's conclusion points to. The face of the Lord is against those who do what is evil. Now, when a New Testament writer cites an Old Testament passage, what they're doing there is importing the entire context of that Old Testament passage into the New. You've perhaps heard me say this before. If I were in conversation to say to you, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. I have in that moment imported the theology and the nostalgia of amazing grace and all of its lyrics into the conversation with just a brief mention. When New Testament writers cite Old Testament passages, they in essence do the same thing. 
in the largely Jewish ears of Peter's audience when he cites Psalm 34. Not only does he emphasize those verses directly quoted here, but he imports the doctrine and the nostalgic remembrance of all that God had done and said in Psalm 34 into the hearts and memories of those who were listening. Perhaps among the verses they would have remembered as Peter cites these verses was the one that said, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Or maybe the one that said, this poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. This man in his poverty with no recourse, with no ability whatsoever, cried out to God and in his moment of helplessness, God delivered him from his troubles. Or maybe this verse, the young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Boy, that's it, right? That's what Peter's describing. Young lions, brute in their force, powerful in their strength, the ability to tear and devour prey with a capacity for violence that exceeds that of any man. Young lions suffer want but the people of God only know the provision of the Father. We lack no good thing. Or maybe those verses that read this way, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the Christian spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them from them all. Can you imagine what must have run through their mind when they heard Peter cite these verses from Psalm 34? Reminder that even in our helplessness, God is actively providing for our protection by his good providence. And moreover, that there is coming a day on the last day when the full measure of God's justice is served in all the earth. I like justice served. Chances are you do as well. Hollywood plays to this want to see justice served. Everyone roots for the underdog. We want to see the disadvantaged rise to the top, tables turned, the reversal of fortunes. We want to see the lowly exalted. There's something about the image of God in which we're created that longs to see the humiliated, exalted, and lifted high. God promises ultimately and finally on the last day that perfect justice will be served. You, know, you, you can want for that, you can crave for that in this life, and you will never have it. You'll, you'll forever be grasping at air. There are measures of justice from time to time which are experienced, just measures of justice. But full and final justice will be served on the last day. And there are some acts of violence, some acts of abuse, trauma that can be inflicted that we can only bear with by constantly remembering that a day is coming when what has been so wrong will at last be made right by God. I'm glad for that. I'm glad that a day is coming when justice is ultimately served. And I'm glad it rests in the hands of a God who always does what is right. Peter's call to submission is altogether unpalatable apart from a firm confidence in the justice of God. We're able to bear with dreadful circumstances because there's no real expectation that justice will be served here, only the full expectation and confidence that a day is coming when it will. Look at verses 13 and 14. 
Peter asks the question in verse 13, who will harm you if you're deeply committed to doing what is good? Now, this is something of a rhetorical question. I don't believe Peter's expecting an answer here, although he addresses the reality in verse 14 that sometimes when you are deeply committed to what is good, bad things continue to happen. What he's citing here in verse 13, what he's noting is that the likelihood of you suffering harm or experiencing bad things is lowered if you do what's right. In other words, if you, if you do dumb things, bad things will happen to you. As is often cleverly said, play stupid games, win stupid prizes, right? Sometimes we suffer harm and difficulty because we make stupid decisions. If you make stupid decisions, it will yield stupid outcomes. If you do bad things, it will yield bad outcomes. This is an inevitable reality of life. It's a consequence of the bad decisions that we make. But Peter notes in verse 14 that even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Don't fear what they fear or be disturbed. If you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. You are blessed, Peter says, if you suffer for what is good. If you find yourself suffering for something that is right, that is a good thing, that is a positive thing. This is, again, a reflection of an eternal perspective. Now, in verses 10 through 12, Peter sort of prods us toward an eternal perspective with regards to the justice of God. One day, it's going to be made right. And we mean that in the negative. We mean that in that God's wrath is going to come against the sin of this world and everything is going to be made right. But he also reminds us here in verse 14 of the kind of eternal perspective that looks, not, looks forward not to the punishment that God is preparing to bring, but the reward that God is preparing to bestow. On the last day, not only will Jesus come to annihilate wickedness in this world, to exact judgment against the evil of this world and every generation, he is coming to lavish the fullness of salvation on all who have believed on him. On the last day, not only will justice be served and that wickedness will be punished, justice will be served and that righteousness will be rewarded. And Peter says here, if you find yourself suffering for what is good, you are blessed in light of that eternal reality. If you have any expectation, it's going to yield real fruit for you in the here and now. You may be disappointed. But if your focus is fixed on that great day when Christ comes again with the shout of an archangel and the sounding of a trumpet, you will never, you will never, you will never be disappointed at the reward that awaits you in Christ Jesus. Not only are we looking forward to a time when, the evil is, when evil is judged, we're looking forward to a time when righteousness is rewarded. And that's precisely the thing that Peter points us to in verses 13 and 14. Verse 15 is a fairly popular verse in 1 Peter for a couple of different reasons. Look at the second sentence in verse number 15. Peter says, always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. The term here for defense, the Greek term for defense is the word we get the Christian term apologetics from. I remember as a new Christian hearing someone talk about being 
involved in apologetics and I thought they meant somehow we apologize for something. That's not what apologetics is about. Apologetics is about defending our faith and it's become an entire field of study where Christians are trained to respond to a variety of different objections to the faith. Scientific objections like evolutionary science or even ethical objections like homosexuality and gender dysphoria in the present day and even philosophical objections like the problem of evil. How does a good God coexist with the presence of, of evil in the world? It's a whole field of study and can be quite complex. But that's not the kind of defense that Peter has in view here. In fact, the defense that Peter calls us to give can be reduced to a single word, indeed a single name, and his name is Jesus. What he's presupposing in verse 15 is that against the darkness of your circumstances, when your countenance is shining bright in the gospel, people are going to want to know what is wrong with you. When everything is going wrong and you remain filled with hope and joy and gladness in Jesus, people will necessarily ask, what is your problem? What is so different about you? What, what is this outlook that you enjoy? Don't you see the circumstances around you? This is going badly. Don't, don't you appreciate the gravity of the moment? And in that moment, we've been platformed to explain why it is that there's an abiding hope in us. And his name is Jesus. One, one of the frustrations that I've had with the whole field of apologetics is the idea that we need training in extra biblical issues in order to give a sufficient testimony to the power of the gospel. There, there, it can be helpful that we understand certain things outside of the teaching of the Bible, but I tend to resort to the testimony of the blind man in John 9. I don't know what you know, but this I know. I once was blind, but now I see. You can bear witness to the hope that abides in you under those circumstances without a great deal of sophistication. It is as simple as Jesus. The reason I don't despair when things go poorly is Jesus. The reason that I'm not forever obsessed with amassing wealth or material things in this life is because of Jesus. The reason I'm not fixated on so many of the obsessions that are customary for men in the Western world today is because of Jesus. The reason I have hope when the diagnosis is poor is because of Jesus. The reason I would prioritize the spiritual success of my children over their academic or athletic success is because of Jesus. The reason I could rejoice at the passing of those I love the most is because of Jesus. The reason we don't have to fear and dread death is because of Jesus. Everything about the gospel is communicating to us that we're now to see the world in a radically different way. We refer to the day of Jesus' crucifixion as a good Friday. That's the power of the gospel. The darkest day in human history has been turned to light by the resurrection of Jesus, and that changes everything about our outlook and everything about our life. Always be ready, Peter says, to give a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that's in you, and his name is Jesus. However, y'all ready for this? However, do this with gentleness and respect. 
keeping your conscience clear so that when you're accused, those who denounce your Christian life will be put to shame. As you engage those who don't share your faith commitments or your convictions or your values, give a defense of the hope that is in you with gentleness and respect. Defending your faith, defending, giving a defense of the hope that is in you with gentleness and respect is seldom captured in Facebook memes. It's never communicated with a snarky tone. And it always prioritizes the winning of souls over the winning of arguments. There is something more important than being right in your conversational debate. It's the salvation of the person who sits across from you in the debate itself. Here, we're called upon not only to speak of the hope we have in Jesus, but to do so in a winsome in wise ways. The goal is not to win arguments, but to win souls. And we do so with gentleness and respectfulness. Nowadays, if you just seek to be respectful of another person in their position in the hopes of winning them to faith, you get coined woke or liberal or something awful like that, right? We've got to capture the ability to be both convictionally firm in our doctrinal commitments and kind toward others who see things differently than we do. It's not impossible to balance those two virtues. Do so with gentleness and respect, keeping your conscience clear so that when you're accused, those who denounce your Christian life will be put to shame. This is tantamount to what Peter says elsewhere when he says, silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing what is right. With head down and hand to plow, do what is right. Keep faithfully plotting, doing what is right. You don't have to answer every accusation. You don't, you don't have to defend yourself against every charge. Head down, hand to plow, faithfully plotting. Silence the ignorance of foolish men by doing what is right. So that when you're accused, those who denounce your Christian life would be put to shame. What he's describing here is a diligently evangelistic lifestyle. You're living in such a way. That, that people are, 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 you're platformed by virtue of your life to give a defense of the hope that is in you. I want us to look at verse 17, last verse. It's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. We'll have some opportunity over the next few weeks, Lord, Lord willing, to deal with this issue of suffering at, at a little greater length. But I, I want you to note here, that Peter says that sometimes it is God's direct will that you and or I would suffer. That's the reality. And for some of you, that's water off a duck's back, no big deal. But for others, it's really problematic because of the circumstances of your life or maybe some influence in your experience. Maybe you just wrestle with these kinds of, of questions. One of, the, one of the big challenges, in fact, if, if, there's, if there's an official challenge to the gospel that I find myself running into more often than others, it is the problem of evil. The question of how God can be a good God and yet there can be real evil in this world. And there are religious systems that seek to try to answer this question. The Bible does not seek to involve itself in that level of philosophical conversation, but there are systems that seek to answer those kinds of questions. 
karma and the language of karma has become fashionable. It's in vogue. I hear people say a lot that, that karma this or karma that, and 90% of people don't know what karma is, and 100% of people don't want karma to be true. You don't want that to be true. What you're observing is the law of the harvest. If you sow sparingly, you will reap sparingly. If you sow abundantly, you will reap abundantly. This is a, a proverbial principle communicated in the scripture. You see it work itself out. It's a part of the rhythm of our life written into God's constitution for creation. It's an observable pattern. If you sow sparingly, you will reap sparingly. You will reap as you sow, the Bible says. But karma is at its essence an effort at answering for the existence of evil. This thing's happening in order to sort of rectify things and write this balance back between good and evil. There's a, a, there's a Greek word for what that represents, but I'm not sure it's appropriate to the pulpit. The Bible does not engage in that level of conversation or conjecture. Rather than God sitting on a divine couch and conversing about these conceptual issues, engaging in this kind of philosophical conversation. The Bible paints a picture of God actively involving himself in the resolution of the problem of evil. And as soon as evil enters the world through the sin of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, God is on the move to bring resolution to this great problem. Never answering so much philosophically for its presence in this world or how it coexists with he as a holy God. He only seeks to remedy the issue. I'm glad for a God who doesn't sit in the corner and scratch his chin and, and converse with others about how this might unfold or philosophically how this works. But who dirties his hand and actively involves himself in the course of human history in order to make this thing right. The climax of biblical history, in fact, the climax of human history, is the act that will ultimately bring resolution to the problem of evil and the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ, who dies for the sins of God's people and is raised again on the third day in anticipation of the last day when Christ descends and eradicates evil in the world and bestows full salvation and reward on those who have come to faith in him. No, the Bible does not participate in philosophical conversations about the problem of evil. God just does something about it. The story of the gospel is the story of God's bringing resolution to the problem of evil. God dealing with the existence of evil in you. And God dealing with the existence of evil in me. And eradicating its effects even in the creation itself. Paul said the creation, the ground beneath our feet groans for its redemption at the coming of Christ Jesus. A day is coming when all is made right. And all is made right through Christ Jesus. Aren't you glad for that? Peter speaks to this more directly in chapter 4 and verse 19. He says there, those who suffer according to God's will should, while doing what is good, entrust themselves to a faithful creator. And there, brothers and sisters, is the invitation that you would persist in doing what is good and entrust your soul to a faithful creator. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth, for these principles. God, I pray that you would help us to hide these away in our hearts, that we might not sin against you. 
Help us to be all that is described in these verses. Lord, that we would be people of humility and gentleness and kindness and tenderness. We do ask, God, that you would serve justice swiftly, that you would protect us, God. Lord, that you would reward our efforts at righteousness. God, I pray that you would fill us with your spirit and help us to do what is otherwise impossible to us. Lord, we recognize that we are made vulnerable under these circumstances, and so we ask for your protection that you would move on our behalf before us and behind us, God, in ways that are otherwise unexplainable. I pray, God, that you would help us to rest in your good providence. Help us, Lord, to be faithful at giving a defense for the hope that is in us. I pray that in the best of times or the worst of times, we would hold fast to gospel values. And that, Lord, where we come short of that, you would forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. God, I'm, I'm thankful that this whole world is in your hands. And God, I pray that even on days when I can't trace the work of your hand, that you give me a heart that trusts fully in you. We ask it in Jesus' name.